Brian Record is a seasoned entrepreneur. In 2009, he launched the Brazilian real estate marketplace, Viva Real, successfully grew the business over the following decade, and sold it in 2020 for over half a billion dollars. His recently published book, Viva the Entrepreneur, is a fascinating modern guide designed to inspire and inform current and aspiring Latin American entrepreneurs. However, the book is just as applicable to founders from Silicon Valley to the rest of the globe. Humble and often funny, Brian's reflections of his own journey help humanize the perception and mystique behind successful tech entrepreneurs. The book is unequivocally straightforward, and Brian is not afraid to celebrate his successes. But perhaps more importantly, he's also willing to reflect on his own mistakes. In fact, one of the biggest takeaways from Viva the Entrepreneur is that successful founders use mistakes as learning opportunities and grow from these experiences. Perhaps my favorite aspect of the book is that Brian lays out incredibly important lessons for entrepreneurs, but he doesn't just teach you the theory. He also illustrates every lesson with countless examples from his own experience. From balancing your personal life, managing your relationship with your co-founders, recruiting a team, building and scaling a product, fundraising and dealing with investors and board members, and even the importance of taking care of your mental and physical health. He makes it clear that entrepreneurship is hard and clearly not for everyone, and founders should always ask for help. Finally, Mr. Rickward is putting his money where his mouth is. Because he sees tremendous opportunity in Latin America, Brian recently co-founded Latitude, an accelerator to help Latin American top thinkers and doers build the next generation of world-class tech companies. If you're even remotely interested in entrepreneurship, I encourage you to take a look at Brian's book, Viva the Entrepreneur. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Really excited and happy to have you here. Uh, how are you today? I'm great, man. I'm, I'm doing great. It's, it's really a pleasure uh, to be on here with you. Absolutely. Listen, before uh, we get started, maybe we can hear a little bit about your background and, and your personal story. Sure. So I'm from California. I'm from the Bay Area originally. You know, I ended up getting my car in my car and driving from California to Costa Rica, bought a one-way ticket to Colombia. You know, a lot of times there's a woman behind these stories. So my wife is from Colombia. We met in San Diego um, and then she went back to Colombia. And then she likes to say that she imported me to Colombia. My plan was actually to make it all the way down to Patagonia. And I ended up making a stopover in Colombia. Three, you know, planned to stay for a few months. Three months turned into six and a half years. And when I was in Colombia, I didn't really know anyone and I didn't, you know, uh, have a job. And so I needed to figure out how to make some money. So I did a handful of entrepreneurial things, starting off from teaching English to uh, eventually getting into kind of tech and building websites and eventually evolved into Viva Real. You know, the experience I had finding a property when I was living in Colombia was pretty terrible. I got kind of taken advantage of in the process. And so around the same time, I found a case study from Mercado Libre. And I thought, why isn't there a Mercado Libre of real estate? And so that was kind of the, the seed that was planted. I quickly realized that being in all of the countries in LATAM was complicated. And so I wanted to maybe become more the Amazon of real estate. Um, and then discovered that Brazil is just an enormous market and decided to go AAB, all about Brazil. And so we, you know, we launched Vivaral. Bootstrapped it for many years because this was 2009 and there was no venture. 
uh, hardly. And so struggled to kind of get it off the ground. You know, friends, family, fools finally raised uh, some money from Kazek and Monashis that did the Series A. And then we piled on some additional growth investors, uh, scaled the business, and ultimately uh, ended up you know, merging with our competitor and then selling it. Uh, the transaction closed in November of 2020. So that's a quick uh, mouthful for you uh, about my journey, but that's, uh, those are the cliff notes. A lot to unpack there. But, but you know, Brian, you just mentioned that you're from California, which for a long time has been really the epicenter of entrepreneurship. But you actually left California and you started in an ecosystem that wasn't very developed when you, when you think about the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Why Latin America? Is it, is it you know, as simple as your wife? Your, your yeah, I mean, you know, I love the region. Um, you know, I spent six months crisscrossing Mexico. Uh, when I was in undergrad, I, I studied in Argentina. And I just, you know, I, I, high school, I went to Costa Rica. So I, I really liked the region and it was an adventure for me and basically just needed a way to kind of pay for my, my travels. And so that, you know, started out as just a, a simple, I'm one of those, you know, entrepreneurs out of necessity. You know, I think that I've always kind of been an entrepreneur uh, at heart and have done a lot of entrepreneurial things before that, but on a small scale. But uh, really the, the, you know, the main draw was, yeah, I mean, I, I, I you know, fell in love and, you know, we're, we're, we're still happily married with two kids um, now uh, up in Sonoma County, uh, up in North of San Francisco, but it was 13 years in Latin America. And I'm, I've still got a foot, you know, foot in the door there and very connected to the region, um, you know, as of today. Standing, outstanding. Great, great wine in, in Sonoma, as we all know. There's some, there's some good wine. There's some good wine out here. When you're out here, let me know and we'll, you know, we'll do a social distancing uh, or post-vaccine, uh, you know, wine, wine tour. Amazing. Uh, so you actually, you've documented your journey in, in a book, right? Which is uh, pretty unique. Not, not everyone that is an entrepreneur writes a book. My first question, uh, Viva the Entrepreneur, right? Amazing book. I'm, I'm halfway through loving it. But my first question is, why, why do it? Why write a book? Why take the time? Yeah. You know, I think that like, I wrote the book. This is not a victory lap on, you know, the successes. It's, you know, you're, you're halfway through it. So you've probably got a sense of like, you know, I try to be pretty vulnerable in the book. I try to be open with like the challenges and, and be real about it. Right. Like, you know, Viva Real, um, you know, be real about it. And the motivation is that it was a lonely journey. It was hard. Uh, I struggled a lot. You know, I fell flat on my face many times and I wanted to write the book that I wish I had when I started. And so that was the, that, that's the main motivation. And I've always been someone that, you know, likes to give back to the ecosystem. I definitely did not write this book for money because I'm already deep in, in costs and in, in what I've put into the book. And I, I definitely won't probably, you know, collect on that a uh, whole lot. Hopefully some of you listeners out there buy it and hopefully it's useful for you. But, you know, my main motivation was to give back to the ecosystem, share the lessons, share the hard lessons. And I remember when I was building Beaveral and I read the hard thing about hard things and that book just touched me. You know, it was during a moment when I was really struggling and, you know, I was ironically had been named entrepreneur of the year, uh, you know, by, by an organization there and, and things were going, looks like they were going great. But, you know, on the outside, things were really exciting and rosy. And then on the inside, you know, literally, I remember that same week, lightning hit our, hit our building um, in our office and literally lost power for days. And, you know, I, I couldn't get out of bed. I was just like, I felt like we were being wasteful with our capital we raised. And these are just like real struggles that all entrepreneurs face. So 
Uh, some of the inspiration came when I read that book and I wanted to have a local account because, you know, Latin America, it's great to have like role models, you know, in the US of building big tech companies, but you know, the, the, the reality is pretty distant from our reality in Latin America. So I wanted to have uh, something that spoke to people that were in the trenches in Latin America. Um, and uh, so it's a mix of the hard thing about hard things. And then you're about to get into the second half of the book, which is a little bit more uh, closer to the Venture Deals book by Brad Feld, um, which talks more about kind of the term sheets and how to raise capital and, and all the elements of that. So I kind of threw those two together and it's and made it a little bit more kind of Latin American focused. Yeah, no, I, I like that you are definitely not afraid to share the challenges and disappointments of entrepreneurship, right? You, you talk about how your best day ever is also your worst day ever. <laughs> um, and, and obviously, I mean, you talk about how entrepreneurship is not for everyone, right? But perhaps you can expand on, on this and, and that's the more hidden part that not everyone talks about, it, you know, and those stresses that, that you go through. Yeah, I mean, I'm 40 years old now today, so I'm not like a spring chicken, as they say, um, but I'm also not like an old, an old dude. So I've got a little bit of wisdom, but enough to know that I just, there's so much I don't know, um, which is different than when you're 25 and you kind of think you have it all figured out. You know, I think that in retrospect, like the whole kind of self-care is important because it's a marathon, not a sprint. And so, you know, I think that's kind of one of the lessons that I've learned, uh, you know, as of the last kind of five to, to seven years and you know, big reflections on that. And in terms of whether entrepreneurship is for you, you know, I think that the motivations are important why you're building what you're building. You know, I talk a lot about if money is your main motivation for your startup, you know, it might work. You, you could be successful. It's, it's something that, you know, it's, it's not, and you don't have to have some kind of idealistic mission behind what you're building, but the best businesses, you know, there's an intrinsic motivation to solve a problem. When I was building Vivoral, I, you know, I got taken advantage of in the process because I, you know, I, I went and I talked to a real estate agent and, you know, I found them, you know, an ad that they had, you know, advertised in the classifieds. This is how long ago it was. And I met with the agent and they said, I've got the perfect property you're looking for. And then they pulled out a list of properties and there was, you know, 15 properties on that list. And they proceeded to charge me to see the information. So my motivation, and I was, you know, living in this, you know, kind of piece of crap, you know, motel and, for those that are Latin American, Americans, a motel is something different. I didn't know what a motel was when I got to Colombia. So uh, a motel, you know, is a little bit different uh, than a motel six or, or some, you know, some type of, uh... so anyways, I, I you know, I, I literally needed to find a place. And then I, here I was kind of in this vulnerable position. I paid the person, wasted the whole day, first property already rented, second property, you know, too expensive. And so I thought there's got to be a better way. So the best entrepreneurs are really pursuing this opportunity that speaks to them and they want to, they're possessed to transform an industry. And, and those are the, those are the entrepreneurs that I think they last, you know, during the, the ups and downs, right? Because if you have an internal motivation that goes beyond just making, there's a lot of ways to make money, right? You know, you can work on wall street and make a lot of money. Um, you know, maybe more than when, you know, than, than, you know, being a, a startup founder. So I think that's important. The, the motivations behind what you're starting. And you talk about the, importance of taking care of your mental health as an entrepreneur? I mean, specifically the part about being lonely. I mean, sounds like you found ways to cope with it. You found mentors, you had this breakfast club, um, you were protecting your, your family time, right? But at the same time, it sounds to me like there was never an ultimate solution. This was a, a working process, right? Maybe you can talk about 
some of those coping mechanisms and then why do you think there isn't that ultimate solution? Yeah, I mean, you, you touched on a few kind of strategies that I deployed and they kind of organically happen, right? Because when you feel lonely when you're building a company, right? They, they oftentimes say, you know, it's, it's lonely at the top um, when you're running a company and when you're reporting to your manager and you've got a team and, you know, as the entrepreneur, you're, you're the head of the organization and you're burdening a lot. You, you're, you're shouldering a lot. So you need to find people that you can talk to about your challenges. And so, you know, you mentioned the Breakfast Club. That was, you know, something that we had a group of, of other founders, you know, to this day, you know, I'm still in contact with all of them. We would, you know, share what's going on with our investors, you know, and different challenges. We talk about stock option plans. We t- we try to, you know, so we try to help each other and be a support system for for others. And you know, I remember when I was like transitioning from CEO to chairman, and you know, I had a conversation with a handful of other founders, and I'm like, hey, well, like, w- w- I'd love your 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 support on this. What do you think? How should I approach this? Should I go individually tell all the investors? Like, I'm worried that they're gonna hate the idea, and this is an important decision for me. So. I think finding your your tribe, finding your community is absolutely critical and that the best people for that are other entrepreneurs because, you know, your close friends that maybe you, you know, you've known for a long time, the reality that you're living is so much different as an entrepreneur. Like it's hard to relate to someone that is in the kind of in the in the thick of it. So, you know, mentors also like, you know, I I remember I had a couple mentors, you know, one I mentioned in the in the book where at one point, we, you know, one of our competitors acquired one of our data sources for our Vivarel, and I was freaking out. And I picked up the phone and I and I called this guy by the name of Simon Baker, and I'd forgot that he was in Australia. And I woke him up at three in the morning and explained what you know what I was worried about. And he said to me, Brian, can I go back to bed now? Because it was a small deal that was in my head that was really not a threat, an imminent threat to our business. And he saw the big picture. And so sometimes you need someone to walk you off a ledge uh, just to listen to you. And it's a bit like a therapist, right? Maybe you have all these things that you're thinking, you share it. It's not the therapist has like this ultimate wisdom that they somehow like, you know, beam onto you. It's that you're actually communicating, articulating, and then you're working it out as you're externalizing it. And so to me, that is absolutely critical. Um, and then obviously you need support from your family uh, because this is, you know, this can take a toll. And so there's many elements to it. And, you know, I talked about it in a couple of different chapters. There's the co-founder dynamic, which is absolutely critical. So these are all things that we discuss in the book. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it is lonely and it's hard and there's no need to sugarcoat it. And not everyone should be an entrepreneur. Not everyone should be building a tech company uh, backed by venture capital. Yeah. So let's talk a bit more about the co-founder dynamic that you just mentioned. I mean, you start by saying that, first of all, you need co-founders because you know it's just that much harder without a co-founder or co-founders. But then you say that without trust, that relationship is nothing, right? The trust is the centerpiece. Can you talk about your relationship with your co-founders and, and why you think you know, it was uh, ultimately successful, but with some challenges as well? Yeah, I mean, Thomas and I co-founded the business. We started the the business. Um, we we had a couple other businesses together, so we had become you know business partners pretty shortly after we met. We were in a very similar situation. We were both kind of backpackers in Colombia at the time, and so you know we had we had a you know a bit of a connection with with our current you know the timing of our of our lives, and you know I think that the trust is built over time, right? And and I talk about there's a framework in the book that. You know, a lot of people use today in, in business, which is the DISC profile, where you, you know, it does a great job of explaining the profile 
of, you know, and qualities and, and personality of the, the people on your team. And it, it, it's relevant for the co-founder. Thomas and I were extremely different in a lot of ways. And we were very balanced in, in kind of how we did it. You know, he was more a critical thinker. You know, I was more of an external person. Um, you know, we had different qualities. So we, we built a lot of trust and we, you know, we worked together. And, you know, I think that you get to a point where you don't actually need to um, even hear the other person, what they're going to, you know, like you, you kind of anticipate when you've worked for so long. So it's really something that's built with time. We, we added another co-founder as we expanded to Brazil. Um, you know, the Thomas and I started like all kinds of stuff prior to this. Like, you know, we would do translation services. We'd build websites. We basically did everything we could to kind of pay the bills and survive. Um, so we were entrepreneurs for survival at, at that point in Colombia. Um, and we brought on Diego. You know, we, we were very bootstrapped. We didn't have a lot of access to capital. You know, I ended up moving to Brazil because we thought that was the opportunity. And Thomas ran the, the office in, in Colombia. And I mean, I ended up moving into Diego's house. And, you know, that was stressful. Um, you know, we built a lot of trust over the time. He flew to Colombia, spent some time with us. And so we you know, built up a relationship and we had a lot of alignment on our values as people, uh, which I think is also very, very important. And, and I call them virtues instead of values in the book because virtues are more behaviors versus aspirational you know, ideas are, are the values. And so I, I like to use virtues instead. But when I moved to, to Brazil and I'm sleeping on Diego's couch, that puts a lot of stress on your relationship and not having any money. Like these are all things that test the relationship. And so I think we navigated it pretty good in retrospect. Um, but yeah, I mean, we were kind of thrust into this and, you know, there's a lot of pressure to make it work. And, you know, it's small things that happen. Like, right, you know, I would come home uh, and, you know, at one point in like my habit was to kick my shoes off in the living room. That's how I did it in my house. And that would like, you know, annoy him, you know? And so it added layers of like complexity to the co-founder relationship, you know, living in the same quarters. So my advice would be, you need to have a separate life between your business and your, 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 you know, your, your personal life. Cause that'll just, you know, a weight that's very, very hard to manage. And at, at times it wasn't just you staying, right? I hope you don't mind me quoting your book. <laughs> you said we were trying to conceive while staying at my co-founder's apartment <laughs> where we didn't even have our own room and had to uh, get creative. Wow. I didn't know that. I appreciate the, I wrote it. So it's fair enough. It's, it's out there on, on, you know, for the world to read. But yeah, I mean, you know, this is another thing, like just about the challenges, right? Like, I mean, here I am trying to build this company. Uh, I don't have any access to hardly any capital. I don't have a network to people to lean on. I'm in another country and my wife and I are trying to get pregnant, like trying to have a baby, trying to start a company. Like that's, you know, those are equal big moments and, and big life-changing events, right? And we, we actually couldn't get pregnant, like not because I couldn't navigate the situation with, you know, being in a, in a one bedroom apartment, which did make it tricky. But, you know, we tried for two and a half years to get pregnant. So then there's like the burden of that, like, and that's the real life, real life shit, right? Like you're, you're, you're trying to have a family. And so like, that is just layers of stress. I mean, a customer doesn't sign up for what you want. Compound that with like getting the news back that you're not, you're not pregnant and you've been trying for a year, right? So like these are all just real life things. And I think that, um, you know, my parents are, were both, you know, they, they met at grad school studying psychology. My mom was a psychotherapist. My dad also worked as a psychotherapist and then became a, uh, you know, a, an entrepreneur. And so I got this kind of interesting mix as a, as a kid. And so, you know, I really put a lot of emphasis on the, the importance of those kind of things and the relationships. 
And so it's, it's very hard. Yeah. I, I think uh, entrepreneurs and readers will appreciate your honesty sharing all these details, right? You, you mentioned that you have to leave your ego at the door and particularly at the beginning that defining roles doesn't really make a lot of sense, right? But eventually you do have to define roles. Can you talk a little bit more about that dynamic and how you eventually came to be the CEO? Yeah, I mean, there's basically jobs to be done at an early stage startup, right? And so if there's, you know, a ton of like just power grabbing on like, you know, your fourth or fifth employee and they, they, you know, they want these big titles, titles cost nothing. So you can give big titles, but like you want people that are just obsessed with executing and delivering value, right? So it's someone that is willing to, you know, I, I, I tried to set an example of humility at Viveral when I was starting. And I, I remember, you know, you know, so this is a bit of a, a, of a, uh, a turn here, but I remember, you know, when we were, we had, you know, 25 people and we were, you know, having a couple of beers at the office and, you know, an intern had spilled a beer in the middle of everything. And it was, you know, like all a big mess. I was the fastest one to, to get on my hands and knees and clean that up. And it was a message of like, doesn't matter that you're the intern, you need a culture of people that are serving other people. And so the titles, all that stuff, it's all, it's all bullshit in the beginning. Because like, you know, I remember, I, I remember companies that start out and like, you know, the founder that just started their company and they got their shiny little business card and it says CEO, you don't even have any employees. Like you're the CEO of nothing. So you need to have uh, the right kind of mentality about that. And there's a difference. There's a, a, a parentheses all open when you're out there trying to like get the first customers, you know, you, you need to actually have like a big image, right? So you need to have an ego, a big ego externally, but in the door behind the closed doors with your team, you know, there's a great little talk on Stanford e-corner from Wences Casares and Mickey Malka, you know, two of the all-time greats in LATAM uh, founders and investors and you know they actually talk about leaving the ego at the door and you know you've got to be able to to balance that internally with your team and the best way to do that is be serving your team and have the feeling you know the humility of just working for other people externally when you're talking to an investor you know it's it's okay to you know puff up a little bit and you know you don't want to be arrogant and you don't want to show you know project this image that you know everything because you know, that's, that's also not attractive, but you want to talk with conviction and confidence. And so it's okay to have a little bit of an ego uh, outside the door. Yeah. It reminds me, we recently had Dan Henry, who's the CEO of Green Dot uh, today, but he's, he's an entrepreneur himself. And he said, all the thousands of employees of Green Dot, you know, he works for them, right? That's how he sees it. It's not that they work for him. So, you know, I, 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 I hear that, that mentality. Let's talk about your relationship with your investors, right? Many people say that your early stage investors are almost like your co-founders. And, and you had some amazing investors early on, but there's a, there's a point in the book that I like it. And you mentioned this story about you arguing with Hernan Casa, one of the co-founders of Mercado Libre, this legendary investor who had one strategy in mind, and you had a complete opposite strategy, and you argued about it. How did I go? Well, first of all, um, Hernan, if he ever hears this, uh, you know, Hernan uh, and I and had a handful of discussions with him. Nico was actually the one on my board, so I talked more with Nico, but I had an amazing conversation with Hernan also because, I mean, the guy's been in the trenches since the 90s building incredible stuff and obviously the most 
founder of the most valuable company in Latin America. So incredible, you know, Kazakh is an amazing investor and I was fortunate to have them. Um, you know, it's good to have a, a perspective on things. And, you know, I think the example that you're referring to was at one point in our company, we were trying to decide whether we were going to build a Latin American play, which obviously Mercado Libre is. And part of the inspiration, as I mentioned in the opening, was, was reading the case study uh, from Meli. So, and I remember having that debate with him. And at the time we were in Colombia, we were in a couple of different places. And it, it just so happens that his experience was that they were all across LATAM. And I had a different perspective because I had looked at, you know, I had another investor who, who came in before them that was an angel investor. And he was the former CEO of a company called REA Group in Australia. REA Group is a $10 billion market cap company now. Um, and he was the CEO from you know, 20 employees to 700 and, and scaled it to you know, 250 million in revenue. So he, he had a, and it was the same business that we were building essentially. So he had a pretty unique perspective. And you know, we couldn't identify one example of a, a classified marketplace business like ours that was regional, that was like in many different countries. So we debated that. And it wasn't like Hernan has like, you know, super strong conviction. He was like, you got to do this. Good investors know that you know, when entrepreneurs have their own kind of mind made up, their job is, if they have a good perspective, is to challenge the entrepreneur and strengthen the thinking. So it was great. It was a, a quick sparring match. Um, it was not a long dragged out process. It wasn't you know, like it, it took a long time for us to get to the, the conclusion. And he just pushed me on it. And eventually he became pretty satisfied with my answer and, and, and he agreed with it. So uh, I wish I'd listened to him a few other times when I didn't listen to him. But you know, that, that's part of the role of the investor. And so in that, in that case, I had the benefit of having someone deeply you know, embedded in what we were building in another country that had been the CEO of a very similar business. And so uh, in that case, I leaned on Simon in that example. And I think it was the right decision uh, for us you know, in the long run. And, and now, as you, as you mentioned, Hernan is not the one on your board. You have Nico on your board. So it's yes. co-founder. How did you set up that board? I think that's something valuable to talk about. You know, it's funny. I remember I had an investor, an angel investor, Greg Waldorf, who essentially led the kind of angel round um, and brought in, you know, guys like Mickey Malka and Wences Casares that I mentioned and a couple other kind of, you know, top tier angel investors that are super networked and LATAM focused. And I remember having a conversation with Greg. I can, it's one of those things where like you remember physically where you were when you had the conversation. It was in my house. I remember it was like in my living room and I'm on the phone with him and he's like, you know, he just did invest. And he's like, who do you want to, who do you want on your board? You know, so let's build an amazing board. And we didn't even have them as investors at this point. You know, Kazek, I wasn't even on my radar. I think I didn't even know about Kazek at that point. And I, and I remember uh, Nico said, or, or Greg said to me, um, think big. And I like, I came up with some name and I'm not going to say the name of the person, but it was, you know, like kind of like a friend of mine, but you know, not even like someone that hadn't even run businesses. Like, and he's like, man, think way bigger. And then I was like, all right, what about the founders of Mercado Libre? And he's like, now you're, now you're thinking bigger. And then fast forward a year later, you know, I got, you know, I raised a series A from Monashis and Kazakh. Eric Asher also joined the board. And then Nico also, you know, was, was part of the board as well. So, you know, it just goes to show you like, you know, it costs the same to dream big and dream small, might as well dream big. And then you manifest those things. Um, so I guess that was, uh, you know, I was lucky to have, uh, you know, both of them on our board because, you know, there's, there's a lot of wisdom and a lot of experience there. And how did that relationship evolve from, you know, pitching them as potential investors 
to then actually joining your board and, and becoming stakeholders? Yeah, it was, um, you know, they actually had reached out to us. Um, you know, this is the, just the start of their fund. I think they maybe had deployed just a little bit of capital. And I remember another one of those things where you distinctly remember the conversation when, you know, I, I had a chat with Hernan, um, you know, on a Friday night, it was like 7.30 at night. Uh, everyone had just like left the office. And I remember just being by myself in the, in the you know, on the phone with him and, you know, just like pitching the business and, you know, and then I had another meeting with Nico, and um, ultimately we got a term sheet, and we, you know, we ended up, um, you know, bringing, you know, bringing them on board and reaching a deal. Uh, the deal was co-led with Monashis, and you know, I, I remember um, it was funny. They asked if, you know, if I wanted uh, who I wanted on my board, and I felt like uh, the last conversation I had with Nico, I felt like I, this is like I have an incredible opportunity to have two of the most amazing entrepreneurs on my board, and they like at the time they were just starting out, so they actually had me choose, which probably nowadays they have like a more system for it. But like, this is like, who do you want on the board? And I was like, I think my last meeting had been with Nico and I was like, all right, Nico, you want to be on my board? And we just, it was very informal and, you know, there wasn't any kind of science to it, but, um, you know, I've, I benefited from, you know, from a lot of their experience over the years. Amazing. We've had, uh, Hernan on the podcast, just an, an amazing episode, but it sounds like we should have Nico as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you write about taking a lot of notes and asking a lot of questions. I'm just so curious, what's your process to taking notes? How, how do you actually do this? What do you mean? I mean in general? Yeah, in general. Do you have a special notebook or <laughs> you know, do, do you use your phone? Because uh, it sounds like this is important to you. I'm actually pretty terrible at this, to be honest. I wish I was more organized um, in how I, how I do this. Um, I mean, I use Notepad on my iPhone to a lot of stuff, but it's very... I'm pretty scatter. I'm like, I'm kind of a scatter brain. It's actually, if my kindergarten teacher saw this interview, she would be just blown away that I actually made it here. I mean, you know, they, she used to call me Mr. Forgetful. So I, I don't think that I have a great system. I mean, I, I, I tend to write things down in a notebook and then, you know, digitally on, on my notepad, but I would love to uh, get a crash course in how to organize my thoughts better. And, you know, I, I, I felt as I, as I had a team, it became easier because, you know, we develop a system and, you know, today we have Trello cards where we organize our thoughts and, and tasks around that. But I don't have a, a brilliant solution for your audience here that, uh, that is a hack. In fact, I'm probably everyone listening here is I'd say 90% of the people listening are probably more efficient and effective in how they, how they manage their, their thoughts than I do. Um, so maybe, maybe someone that's listening can reach out and tell me their system. Well, the, the book is pretty organized, so somehow it works, right? <laughs> it, it, it worked out. It worked out. And I did take notes over the years. Uh, in all fairness, I had a, about 15 pages of notes that I would jot down. So I, I guess I'm not being fair to myself, but, and this was back in, even when in 2012, 13, I had the foresight that I would want to remember this stuff, which if you're an entrepreneur right now, you're experiencing so many things. And like, I wouldn't remember it unless I wrote it down. So in all fairness to myself, I guess I'm not a total disaster. <laughs> and, and what I like about all this is you are actually putting your money where your mouth is, right? You, you're not only writing to develop the ecosystem, but maybe you can talk a little bit about Latitude and, and what is it that you're doing to help the future generations of entrepreneurs? Sure. I'm very grateful for the mentorship advice, you know, network that I built over the years uh, as I was building Viveral. 
And so the way was paved for me um, by a lot of other people. And I'd mentioned guys like Mickey Malka, you know, I, I would have calls with Mickey and, you know, just the guy would just drop pearls of wisdom all over the place. And because, you know, he'd been there and there's many other people. I mentioned Greg, Simon, Kevin Efferzy. Uh, there's just a bunch of people that I was able to lean on. And so the spirit of the Silicon Valley, a lot of it is just this like kind of give first mentality. And so I think that is part of the ethos that I live by also. Um, and so when I look back and I remember all the things that I was able to learn from other people, I want to kind of pay it forward. And, you know, this kind of started, I started angel investing, I don't know, five or six years ago. And, you know, the classic saying of, you know, someone asks for money, they end up with advice, you know, and occasionally if you ask for advice, you end up with some money. I took a couple of calls, you know, and, and helped some other founders along the way. And then I was able to toss a check in and that worked out well. And so the genesis of Latitude is a culmination of all of these experiences of working with other mentors and you know the networking community. And so I, I decided I wanted to organize that better and kind of help structure the ecosystem since I think we're at the early days of, of, of LATAM ecosystem. So it started a couple months ago uh, in 2020, as we all know, a very strange year. Here I am. I'm sitting here waiting for antitrust to approve my deal. It's driving me absolutely bananas. You know, I'm having calls with my friend Oscar who got blocked by antitrust in, in Mexico and, you know, I'm all these seeds of doubt and I'm, you know, kind of feel like my life is on hold while I wait for this to happen. And the best way to get distracted is to just create some movement. So I started taking initiative where I would just, I literally took hundreds of calls from founders and I made myself available. And I, I, I focused on the give first mentality where I would just listen, uh, give feedback not try to like tell founders what to do, but just give my, my perspective and be an empathetic listener and give a few ideas. And what I found was that a lot of the feedback I was giving was a lot of the same advice to, to multiple founders. And so I thought, you know, the efficiency kind of, you know, entrepreneur in my mind, how do I make this more efficient so I can leverage my time better? So I started organizing with other founders. And around the same time, I ran into um, Gina Gotthilf, uh, who is a co-founder uh, and Yuri Danilchenko and my other co-founder, we'd been talking about doing something, um, and you know, we 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 had a, a lot of passion for the ecosystem. And you know, he's a tech founder. He he wanted to do you know to to give back. And so when we three of us got together, we all had this super deep alignment with wanting to kind of democratize more access to information. So we decided to host this kind of two week, um, you know, I don't know what to call it, but like almost like a boot camp, free equity free. And I started calling on mentors of mine. Uh, you know, Greg, who I'd mentioned, led a session. Uh, I called a handful of other people. And we basically covered everything from fundraising, sales, marketing, recruiting, and it was just a magical community. And so I wanted to kind of replicate some of the breakfast club stuff. And it was the perfect format for it because everyone was stuck at home and all the mentors were available because we knew that they were at home. So it resulted in some magic and the community started and it's been strengthened. And now we're running cohorts and we've, we've met a handful of founders. Uh, I ended up investing in a bunch of them that came through. So I ended up writing checks at the end. And you know, I, then I, after I wrote a check, I wanted to share it with other people. So that's when I, you know, I called a bunch of my you know, angel investor friends and then VCs came on board and we had our first kind of demo day, which you know, maybe you can throw a link to this if you want. And here, I haven't really promoted this, but we had a demo day with yeah 97 investors and 17 pitches and it was a total success and and so we decided to kind of repeat that so that's a little bit more of the genesis of latitude yeah no i, I know i'm excited about it and i know uh, everyone else who's looking at Latin America is going to be excited. So uh, thank you for doing that. Uh, before we go, Brian, we always love to ask 
all of our guests about some of their hobbies. And maybe you can tell us how you spend some of your time outside of, of, of work or, you know, more your professional life. So a couple of years ago, I got into this, like, I guess it's a sport, but it's uh, basically I, I, with a friend of mine, we we're in the Pacific ocean here, you know, it's Northern California, freezing cold Pacific. And there's uh, this thing called abalone. Abalone is essentially a mollusk. It's a mix of like a scallop and like a calamari, like, and it's on the bottom of the ocean. And so I went with my friend, you know, a couple of years ago and, you know, you get, you got to wear a wetsuit with like a hoodie and like, as it's freezing cold water, you know, there's also the, the thought of sharks in Northern California, which is, is definitely, I'm not a crazy thrill seeker, but it definitely gets your blood going a little bit. And you free dive down with this metal rod and you basically you know, you get some leverage and you pop off these gigantic shell, the creature, and you, you basically barbecue them. So I got into that like a couple of years ago. And unfortunately, the last year, um, there's a problem in Northern California where the kelp is getting, is getting eaten by the sea urchin. And the sea urchin is the kind of, is, is a pest in, in this part. So uh, there, and, and the kelp is the main food source for the, uh, the abalone. So I haven't been able to go out in the last year. And I, and I recently took up kite, kiteboarding as well. Um, and so I did that, um, you know, recently I did in Costa Rica on Lake Arenal and in Mexico. Uh, but I'm eager to be able to travel a little bit more uh, as soon as kind of things, you know, become a little bit more back to normal. But uh, I'd say those are two kind of fun water-related things that I like to do that uh, are, are a bit of adventure and, and fun. And also do some mountain biking and, and road biking as well. Uh, in the kind of through the vineyards up here in Sonoma, which is a gorgeous kind of way to kind of let your mind, uh, you know, relax. We, we have some some unique hobbies, but <laughs> this is definitely a first. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> now, Brian, again, can't thank you enough for joining us. This has really been fascinating. The audience will love it. I recommend the book for everyone. Uh, we're going to include all the links so people can find it. And you know now you're you're a friend of of the show. You're a friend of Wharton. You're invited to stop by campus once things get normal. And you know, thanks again for joining us. Thank you, and congrats on the podcast. I'm a fan. I got inspired by what you're doing, and I launched my own podcast, Latitude Podcast. Which you know, I'm not quite there yet. I think I'm at 30 episodes, so I'm not in the triple digits yet. But you know, working on it, and also love to have you on at some point. And it's a pleasure and an admirer of Wharton School of Finance, and you know, as, as an institution. And so it's a pleasure to be and an honor to be part of it. Thank you, Brian. It's our honor. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton FinTech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armaza.